On today's edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we're talking with Christine Hammond, a leading mental health influencer, author of Abuse Exposed, identifying family secrets that breed dysfunction, and the Exhausted Woman's Handbook. Now here's our host, Camille Milner, a collaborative divorce attorney in Denton, Texas, with today's podcast. Well, Christine, thank you for joining us today on the Respectful Divorce Podcast. Um, I've got more questions than we can possibly cover in the time that we have allocated, and I want to thank you for giving us this time today. So we'll just dive right in. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this, and we'll be happy to do um, another one at a different time so that we can follow up on some of those other questions. So I'm Christine Hammond. I'm I'm a licensed mental health counselor. I'm nationally certified. Um, I I work in the state of Florida. I'm also a collaborative divorce professional, a mediator, um, and parent coordinator. And so my primary job is to work in high conflict cases. That's my specialty. I love working in that area. And I try to help find resolution, um, oftentimes when there is no resolution, to keep people out of the court system. So that I would say that sums up my job and every different role that I play. Um, and so I'm happy to be able to talk about any of my insights along that way. Wonderful. And thank you for your work. I have always believed that mental health professionals have the key to unlocking all the secrets that will make the world good again. And people don't realize that enough. I, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, so heartily. So you have written a couple of books. I want to talk about both of them. Let's talk about, uh, and I, the first one was called The Exhausted Woman's Handbook. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Let's, let's dive into that real quickly. Okay. Um, can you tell the reader or excuse me, the listeners a little bit about what the premise of that book is and how you came to write that? Sure. That really came from um, my own experience and then some of my own clients' experience who I was coming across uh, just very exhausted people who were acting and behaving in ways that were probably fairly destructive for their life um, and, and causing unnecessary conflict. And what I found is that the exhaustion a lot of times is due to um, trauma, so unresolved trauma in a variety of different ways, whether that's childhood trauma or current trauma that a person is going through. Um, and and when when that trauma just becomes this overload, and then you add on top of it a very busy schedule, which I had working, plus I had three kids, um, have a husband, and so with also with a very demanding career. And so when you add trauma, unresolved trauma on top of a very busy life, you often have a disaster in front of you um, and a lot of exhaustion. So that's how I wound up writing the book. And what year did you publish it? I want to say it was about um, almost 10 years ago now. I bet a lot of clients have already benefited from that. I've benefited from it just from the reading of it that I have done. I'll share it with my clients going forward. Yeah, thank you. If you would, um, as as you and I talked about prior to starting the podcast, I've always found it really interesting that mental health professionals seem to have a key to unlock what will change the world. And on an individual basis and on a collective basis, 
what is it that you all know, do, that helps people dig into and unpack their trauma and the process that you use to help them do that and heal from it? You know, I really do believe that a good history is the essential ingredient in order to figure this out. And and the history of taking, like when I start with my clients, I ask them for five things. And I'm, I want them to tell me their story from the beginning, like born and raised all the way until current. But I tell them I'm looking for five particular things because in my experience, these five things really kind of unlock um, what could be at the heart of a lot of issues in their life. So the first thing is like, tell me about um, deaths that you have had, like significant deaths or losses of people that you have known. The second is any abuse that you might have experienced. Um, and, and abuse comes in many different forms. And that's the subject of my other book that we can talk about at a different time. But there's a lot of different ways that people can be abused over the years. Next is any kind of trauma. So that trauma could be, um, you know, for instance, in Florida, we have hurricanes. And so oftentimes, like hurricane trauma is fairly significant. Um, and is something that people have experienced. Trauma could also be a divorce of a parent. That could be a trauma. So we have deaths, we have um, abuse, we have trauma, I, and accidents is the next one. Uh, a lot of people miss the idea that you could have fallen off of a horse, for instance, and hit your head really bad, had a concussion, and that accident could have been um, very detrimental to yourself. Um, and so, so that's an important ingredient. And then the last is addiction. And addiction for me is um, anything personal or family related. Um, so if you have a family member, for instance, who is an alcoholic, a lot of times the entire family dynamic is still operating off of a person being an addict, even if they are no longer an addict. And so those five things are really important information to have. And like a good history is the foundation for getting started. And then depending on what the client says um, about those five things, then then that's where I start to drill down in one of those areas. And how can you help me better understand when I hear people say, oh, you just go to a therapist and all you do is rehash your family history and figure out a way to blame your parents? So, yes, there, there are still Freudians out there. That, that <laughs> concept comes from Sigmund Freud. And so there are people and there are therapists who do that. Um, and I, I take a very different approach. It isn't about blaming anybody, actually. In fact, I try to stay away from the blame game because I don't think that serves people. And it teaches a very unhealthy pattern of like, oh, well, it can be all this person's fault and, and everybody else doesn't have any responsibility whatsoever. Um, and what I've often found in times is that it isn't all one person's fault. And and that that it often is like a combination of different things. And so we have to look at more than just the person. We have to look at the environment. We have to look at their history. There's generational trauma, trauma that's been passed down from one generation to the next. And sometimes without anybody even realizing that they're passing it down from one generation to the next. And what does that um, look like? How can it be that they pass it down? Is it a DNA passing down or a family stories or a family systems question or all of the above? All the above, actually. Yeah, you did a great job summarizing that. Yes, it, it is all of the above. So sometimes it could be 
something that's hidden within our DNA. We all have a personality aspect of ourselves. And so our personalities get formed and passed from one generation to the next. So it could be an actual DNA function. Um, sometimes it is environment. It is the way you grew up. My parents did this. And because my parents did this, I'm going to do this with my kids. And then therefore my kids are going to do it with their kids. And for good or bad, like that works both ways. And then sometimes there's just unresolved trauma and people don't even know why they're acting the way that they are. It's the entire family system or cultural background, quite frankly, that could be causing some level of dysfunction. You've got five steps that you go through with clients to deal with their past trauma. Step one, realize you were wounded. Step two, assess your abilities. Step three, clean your wound. Step four, stitch your wound. And step five, bandage your wound. Can you expand on those and tell us what that looks like when you are working through trauma with a client in the process that you and they work in? I think that most important thing that we can do is that we recognize that something is wrong and something is wrong beyond like what we understand or know. And we need a different perspective outside of ourselves in order to help us get better. So we have to recognize that we have a wound somewhere. Um, and so I use the analogy of a wound um, and, and I'm talking like like a if you think of it in terms of a physical wound, like a scar that you have or a wound that you have, because then it helps you kind of realize, OK, there's physical wounding, but then there's also emotional and mental wounding that people go through. So the first part is just the recognition. OK, an acknowledgement. Something's not right. Something's wrong. I, I need to figure out what this is. And that takes a bit of introspection, doesn't it? It does oftentimes, yes. Or sometimes it's not from within, but it can be things are just not working in my life. Correct. Or somebody could be pointing out something to you saying, hey, you know, this isn't like your reaction to this seems a little bit off. So it could be as simple as that. And the second step you have is assessing your abilities. And I, I wondered about that in the context of resilience. Right. So like for some people, they can assess their ability to handle the situation and say, you know what, I can read this self-help book and um, and I can work through this myself. Like this is something that I really feel like I'm able to handle. I, I have the time to process it. I'm able to look outside of myself and have a good vantage point. And so for some issues, like most people can do it that way. But then there are a lot of people who really need somebody else's viewpoint. They need somebody else to like look at a situation and say, hey, like I think reframing it might be necessary. And then the next one you have is cleaning your wound, which I, I also find fascinating. So the idea of cleaning a wound is really important. Oftentimes, like we want to see the wound and we want to fix it and we don't want to actually clean it. Um, just like with an actual wound, there can be an infection that often winds up in a wound. If you don't clean it out properly, the same thing happens with this. So if we have an unresolved trauma, for instance, and um, let, let's just say like it's an unresolved trauma from childhood where there was an abusive event and we don't clean that wound out, meaning that we don't examine it. We don't look at it from the point of like how we felt 
what we thought about the event, what our fears were, what the consequences were that resulted, what, what are our behaviors that wind up happening later on because of that one event. Like if we don't actually clean it out and examine it, then we're not gonna fully heal from it. We can cover it up, we can band-aid it, but we're not actually gonna get true healing from it. And I think like a physical wound, it can cause more scarring than healing if it's not properly cleaned out. Would that would that be what you would say? Absolutely, totally agree with that. So the next one is stitch your, stitch your wound. Yeah, so stitching your wound is most often, like I like to call it reframing, right? So we going back to the example of the childhood trauma, once we've cleaned out the wound, then we reframe it. We look at it from a different perspective. We try to see how all the other players acted and behaved. And maybe we start to show compassion for some of them or understanding um, that they were perhaps operating or existing out of their own trauma. Not that we take responsibility away from somebody, but that we recognize that we all can play a role in this. Um, and sometimes also stitching it up means that um, we have to take responsibility for our own actions and behavior because perhaps somehow we contributed to, to how we got to this space. And, and so that's part of stitching it up. And is a part of that taking whatever trauma or wound that was and making it part of your fiber in a, a learning lesson context yes. rather than a, a continuing wound? Yes, that's exactly right. Like reframing it in a way that allows us to be healthy, even talk about it later without um, feeling the trauma that goes along with it. And so the fifth step in your list of, of those steps is bandaging your wound. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah. So when we bandage a wound after we've stitched it up, then that that is like how it really allows it to heal fully. So we give it time. You know, everything needs time to heal. And so we can't like just say, OK, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to run through the steps. And then, you know, and then expect it to be done with and over with and not give it the necessary time to fully heal. Sometimes the bandaging is forgiveness. It is asking for giving, granting um, forgiveness to somebody in some way or receiving it um, if that needs be. Like there's different ways that you can wind up bandaging a wound, but but forgiveness is usually a part of that journey. Well, I am sure that in our next podcast, we will go much more deeply into this in your second book. I believe it's your second book, Abuse Exposed. Is that correct? Yes, yes that's correct. But for today, can you tell me how this all applies in what your work is in the collaborative field and as, as an MHP in that arena and in your parent coordination arena? So what I try to do is, um, so this is what I do when I'm counseling, but what I do when I'm in those two roles for parent coordination or for collaborative is I recognize that um, how a person got to where they are right now is because of usually some unresolved trauma. And, and so showing compassion and empathy for them, even sometimes helping them to identify or recognize that they probably need to work through something um, with a therapist 
uh, is part of what I would call like my fair share of of the deal. And and when you do that and you show somebody understanding um, and you really treat them from a place of respect um, as you start to identify things that they might need to work from, I, I find that people receive it quite well. Um, and, and it comes across in a good way. It's much better to address it um, with uh, from a sense of respect and care than it is from like an angry, you need to go get help. There's something wrong with you kind of attitude or treatment of someone. There's a phrase that you in the MHP world have taught us lawyers, which is help me understand and turning us into listeners instead of talkers all the time, which I think one of my colleagues here in Denton, Texas, the first lawyer that brought an MHP into our collaborative cases said, what you all bring is pixie dust. Everyone in the room behaves better because you all bring a calm and a skill set that we just didn't pick up in law school. And that's why you you make everything better. And we thank you for your gifts. Can you tell us what, a respectful divorce looks like to you? What would that term mean? Sure. So a respectful divorce is one in which we recognize that um, everybody contributed to this. Like we got here somehow, we entered a marriage together and we're going to enter the divorce together. And, um, And then through the divorce, it is treating the other person with respect instead of anger um, jealousy, resentment, bitterness, um, but treating the other person with respect um, in recognizing that at some point, you know, they may be part of your life and may be part of your life going forward, um, especially if there's children. Uh, there are going to be opportunities where you're going to wind up seeing each other. And, and if we can do a divorce in a healthy, respectful way um, that shows dignity to all the parties that are involved, Well, then that lays a good foundation for co-parenting later and also lays a good foundation for the children um, so that they are not negatively impact and and the divorce doesn't become a trauma that they then have to um, unpack later on in life. And that's very aspirational. And I would say I am seeing it happen on a daily basis, particularly with the collaborative process. Do you feel like it's moving out of just aspirational goals to being applied in cases and families are beginning to heal within the divorce process rather than be scarred for future mental health professional meetings when they unpack that trauma. Yeah, that's certainly the goal, right? Like the goal is like we can do a divorce in a healthy way um, so that the parties don't need a parent coordinator afterwards and don't need to go back and relitigate. Um, and and that the family unit, um, although it's going to look different, um, is still intact. Christine, thank you for sharing this time with us today. I look forward to our second, third, fourth, and as many as we can put together podcasts with you. You're delightful to talk with, and you have such insight and wisdom. And thank you again for today. Thank you so much. Tune in next time for another edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast. And remember that collaborative divorce is a better way to untie the knot.